Thanks be to God. Good to see you today. Thanks for being here. My name is Matt. Um, I've, I've loved that the lectionary over the past couple of months has focused our attention in 1 John, as I think there's so much there that coincides with what we're working through in the book of James. You know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, he was an American rabbi uh, who many regard as the most influential Jewish scholar, theologian of the 20th century, but he once said, when I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. When I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. And maybe you could change that when I was young, I admired clever people. You could change that to intelligent or smart, or maybe you could adopt a different adjective altogether. When I was young, I admired people that were hip or people that were strong or rich people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. Now, despite the rapidly spreading gray hair in my head and throughout my beard, I'm not as old as that would lead you to believe, although I do think my definition of old is changing pretty quickly recently, but even at my relatively young age, I get what he's saying. I am increasingly drawn towards and impressed by people who are kind and gentle rather than some of those other desirable qualities like intelligence and strength. But in reality, perhaps kindness and wisdom can't be separated as often as we think it can be. You know, the book of Genesis tells us that the God we serve is the creator of heaven and earth. This is a belief that we affirm God is the creator of everything that we know. We affirm that belief every time we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And as its creator, we believe that God shaped the universe in such a way that there are particular patterns or there are ways of life that if we follow those ways, they lead to personal and communal fulfillment, which I actually don't think can be separated. Personal and communal fulfillment are always taken together. Now, we can disagree with those patterns and those ways of life, which are expressed most clearly in the life of Jesus. We, we can go off, shun those, go off and pursue our version of the good life and the American dream, but ultimately, our scriptures teach us that that isn't going to lead to a fulfilling life. And I think part of what James is arguing in this particular passage that we're going to read this morning is that it's going to be a wise choice for us to live into the intended design, even if that feels like it's stifling our individuality at first. Because there is a wise and there is a foolish way to live. And true wisdom, as opposed to earthly wisdom, true wisdom rests upon the foundation of God's plan for his creation. So I think this morning James is going to help us think a little more deeply about this idea. Wisdom versus foolishness, or more precisely, wisdom that is from above versus wisdom of this earth, which he actually takes to the extreme and describes as being demonic. We're going to begin reading in James chapter 3, verse 13, where he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
Who is wise, James asks. Now, I don't think he's asking for a list of the best and brightest in the congregation. He's not looking for a who's who or an honor society type list from the congregations to whom he writes. No, it seems as though James is almost presenting a challenge to the reader. You think you're wise, or you claim to be wise, or maybe you want to be wise. Well, if that's the case, prove it in the way you live. Prove it with your works. Prove your wisdom with the works you do. Now, I can imagine his audience protesting at that thought. Wait a second. Prove wisdom with works? That's not how wisdom functions Is it? Isn't wisdom the information that is contained up here in your noggin? Which I'm sure is exactly how they would have protested, because noggin is what was a very common first century Jewish colloquialism. It wasn't actually, but nonetheless. What we find here in James a return to that theme from chapter 1 and chapter 2, where he argues, don't just hear the word, it's not enough, hear the word and then do the word. We are seeking to explore a living faith, not a faith that is just contained up here but doesn't then change how we live in concrete ways. So right in line with Jewish conceptions of wisdom, James says wisdom, much like faith, is demonstrated by your good conduct. Wisdom is demonstrated in the way we live. And then he changes directions a little bit, or at least narrows his focus, because he goes on to say, you demonstrate that you're wise in the way you live, the works you show, and he says, show works in the meekness of wisdom. Show works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, that probably sounded somewhat oxymoronic in a society that was heavily influenced by Greek culture, where... Meekness wasn't always associated with wise living. In fact, in some respects, meekness was a disposition that should be shunned. I mean, we could think of somebody like Aristotle, who taught that virtue is sort of found in the middle ground between two vices. It's the middle ground between two extremes. So, for instance, pride was a virtue that was between the vices of arrogance on one hand and humility on the other hand. So arrogance and humility, those were both things that you wanted to avoid, but pride was right in the middle. It was sort of the sweet spot. And and for him, pride was simply an accurate assessment or an understanding of your personal achievements and the things that you possessed. And so that was a good thing for individuals to acquire and live by. Likewise, for many Greeks of the day, to be meek was to be degraded. It was to be dishonored, and that wasn't wise. That wasn't something to pursue in your personal life. It was a demeanor to be avoided. And maybe as you're thinking about that, you think, well, that sounds pretty similar to the context in which we live today. Well, I can't be meek. I'm a man. I have to be stern. Or I'm a modern woman. I, ha- I can't show gentleness. I have to show that I am strong. But I think with contemporary visions of both masculinity and femininity in mind, any concept of manhood or womanhood, any concept of personhood, 
for a follower of Jesus that does not include meekness is not biblical, even if our culture defines it as such. To be a man, to be a woman following the way of Jesus, to be a person following after Jesus is to be meek. So James comes along in line with what Jesus lived and what Jesus taught, and he says, no, actually, true wisdom that comes from above is meek. I don't care what your culture teaches you or trains you in. That sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Jesus, who we see the day before he is crucified, what do we find him doing? Washing the feet of his disciples. And then shortly after that, what do we see? We see he is willingly walking towards a humiliating death on the cross. That's the example Jesus provides for us. But meekness isn't something that he just demonstrates in the way he lives. It also is how he understood himself. This is how Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28 we read, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is really quite remarkable to think about. That Jesus, who just before these words, has said that the Father handed all things over to me. And just before he says this, he says, nobody knows the Father except the Son, and yet the Son of God simultaneously understands this about his nature, saying, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's an idea that doesn't really line up with the typical understanding of wisdom at the time. I don't think it does today either. Meekness isn't typically regarded as wise because meekness doesn't move the needle at all when it comes to getting ahead in life. And a lot of times that's what we reduce our conceptions of wisdom to. What is going to get me ahead? What is going to be the most productive how am I going to use my skills and abilities to move forward in life? Meekness doesn't really do that. If I can't get what I want out of this life, if I can't become what I want to become, I have to acquiesce to the cultural virtues of pride and arrogance and a willingness to snatch or to take what I want. And yet Jesus instructs his followers. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount saying, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. So in God's economy, things sort of get flipped upside down. The earth, the creation of our creator, belongs not to those who snatch it up, but it belongs to those who can't possess it in their own strength. Or it belongs to those who are able to possess it in their own strength, but refuse to do so. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. The way of Jesus is a way defined by meekness. We see that in his example. We see it in his self-understanding and also in the words he instructs us with. We continue reading in verse 14, James chapter 3. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So while pride is, was often considered to be a virtue in the ancient world, envy was a different story altogether. It was almost universally considered to be a damnable vice and moral thought of the day. Aristotle, again, re returning to him, he defined envy as a sorrow that is produced in our hearts or in our minds simply because somebody else has something and we don't have it. And what makes envy so tragic is that that something that somebody else has, we may not even want it until they possess it. Plutarch, the late first and early second century philosopher, called envy the only unspeakable sickness of the soul. The only unspeakable sickness of the soul. So all vice is sickness, of course, but envy is so grotesque that we can't even look at it. We can't even speak of it. It's sort of like a gruesome injury in football. You know, one of those injuries that occurs like every other play. Uh, that, that is so horrific that you can't even look at it. It, it makes you physically ill to watch it. That, that's kind of how envy was understood. Now, it's really interesting to me that the vice that in ancient philosophical and theological thought that is the most repulsive is the one often easiest for us to overlook and make excuses for. At least I've seen that in my own life. I can come up with all sorts of creative ways to excuse envy in my heart. But if I go down that path, if I choose to excuse envy when it creeps into my mind, it always leads to disorder relationally. James says it always leads to every vile practice. And I think one of the dangerous things with envy in particular is that it's sort of this dual threat vice. So you've heard of the dual threat quarterback? I don't know why I'm resorting to all these football analogies today. Maybe because the NFL draft is going on which I don't even really care about, but anyway, the, the dual threat quarterback, a quarterback who can throw the ball with great precision, but sort of keeps defenses on their heels because they can also take off running with great agility to avoid and tremendous speed to outrun defenders. And so the defense never really knows what that quarterback is going to do. And in some ways, I think envy is like that. It's the dual threat vice. And this is what I mean by that. We might be tempted to think, well, envy is only something that those who don't possess much have to worry about. Envy is only a vice that those who wish they could possess more are tempted by. And it certainly is a vice that those who experience a lack in a particular area in life must guard against. I mean, Leo Tolstoy said that if a poor man envies a rich man, the poor man is no better than the rich man. Even if that rich man is using exploitative measures to acquire the wealth, 
When, when the poor man begins to envy that position, he's no better than the rich man. And yet, we must keep in mind that envy is also a vice that those who possess a lot are susceptible to. It impacts all of us. It threatens to destroy relational harmony across the board. For those with a lot of wealth or those who have many talents or those blessed with an abundance of fulfilling relationships, envy is probably going to be expressed differently, but that temptation is still there. I mean, if I have a lot of possessions, whatever they might be, I'm not going to be envious of the person that has little in that I want what they have because they have nothing. But in my heart, envy might be expressed in my desire to cling to the things I have and to prevent them from getting those things. And when we allow envy to take root in our hearts, it is impossible, it is impossible to live at peace with others. It is impossible for harmony to to exist in our relationships because when we adopt an envious attitude, our perception of other people is always reduced to what they have versus what I have or what I don't have. And that approach to life will endlessly turn life into a game where the one with the most possessions in the end wins the game. And it's always a zero-sum game that there are limited resources. So what you possess directly impacts me because if you have it, I can't possess it. I think in many ways, envy originates with a scarcity mentality. There is only so much available. And we have to divide these resources between us. But the Christian view of possession says, no, that's not how this works because the possessions that we are interested in are not physical possessions. The possessions we are interested in are things like the fruit of the Spirit. And when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, those are not limited resources, but they flow in abundance. And when you experience those gifts to greater degrees, that increases my capacity to experience them as well. I think the antidote, or one of the antidotes to envy is changing how we view life in general. I think I've shared this thought before, but Brian Zond put it this way. He said, life is not a game. It is a gift. Life is not a game. It is a gift. The purpose of life is not to win, but to learn to love well. Life is not a game. It is a gift. The purpose of life is not to win, but to learn to love well. I think if we could retrain ourselves to view our lives and to view the lives of others through that filter, we would be well on our way to living without envy. So clearly for James, adopting an envious heart or attitude is not a wise way to go about life, but what is the alternative? Well, we find what he says in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. So previously, he has outlined that wisdom that is earthly, or as he is want to do, takes it to the extreme, describes wisdom of this earth as demonic. And that is a wisdom that is often in our culture set up as the ideal, that those who possess must take what they want or they will be left with nothing in the end. And if you can't get what you want, well, then maybe you should curse the one who has it or withhold your friendship from them because, again, in the end, this is all a competition. It is me versus you. It is us versus everybody else. And James says that is demonic. James says that's demonic. It is not a wisdom that comes from above. Austin discussed this idea briefly a few weeks ago. The the idea that as we seek to purge vices from our lives, that purging must be followed by a cultivation. It's not just us saying, okay, I'm going to avoid this attitude. I'm not going to participate in this behavior and my work here is done. I'm going to avoid this attitude. I'm going to purge my life of this vice and then I'm going to replace that with these virtues. We must replace vice with virtue and false wisdom with true wisdom. So he's characterized false wisdom, but what about true wisdom? We find it in this list that we've just read through. And you may notice as you read through that list in those verses that it sounds very similar to what Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit. So maybe for James, wisdom that comes from above is something that is done in us by the power of the Spirit of God. So back to that list. He says wisdom from above begins with purity, begins with purity. It is first of all pure, which encapsulates all of the other characteristics, wisdom that is without spot or stain. And here he says wisdom that is pure isn't going to stain your body. And then he further describes it and says it is peaceable. It is peaceable. I think this is an incredible challenge in this particular cultural moment. And it's probably a challenge in every age, I would imagine. Maybe it just seems especially difficult today because opponents and enemies are not seen as people with whom we can disagree and peacefully coexist, but are rather seen as the enemy and must be called out and must always be shown why they are wrong. And I think that tendency, which if you're like me is a temptation, I think it's especially prevalent today because we can sort of spew vitriol from a distance. We, we can attack another person and yet remain detached. But we can attack somebody and then we can shut the computer off and go about our lives. We can attack and remain detached, which I think makes relational turmoil a little more palatable for us, but maybe even more devastating. In her book, Braving the Wilderness, Brene Brown made the statement that people are hard to hate close up. People are hard to hate close up. And her suggestion to combat that is to move in. If people are hard to hate close up, move in. Put yourself in a position where you are forced to reckon with the humanity of those you are tempted to disregard. Put yourselves in a position where you're forced to reckon with the humanity of somebody that you envy. I think that goes a long way in making for peace. 
It's the only way I think we move towards peace. To reckon with the humanity of others. But as James continues, peace is only possible through gentleness. If we shun gentleness, for whatever reason, if we shun gentleness because it represents weakness for us culturally, if we shun gentleness, there is no hope for peace. And so we adopt a mindset where we are willingly, we are constantly willing to yield to others. We follow in the footsteps of our Lord who was both humble, who was meek, who was gentle. Then he says true wisdom is open to reason. Again, a quality that is so rare in today's environment. Open to reason. And I think that's due in part to the fact that our tribes force us into corners where we have to accept all of our tribe's views and we have to be staunch in our commitment to those views and staunch in our hatred for the other. We're so conditioned to refuse to yield. And when we allow that to grow in our hearts, we're never going to be able to defer to the other. I'm never going to be able to defer to my enemy lest my enemy take a mile with the inch that I give up. And I don't think that James is advising that we relax or compromise the doctrines our faith is built upon. I don't think you can read his letter and reach that conclusion. I mean, throughout this letter, he, there are very clear moral standards he argues for. But he also says, if you want peace in your relationships, when it comes to things that ultimately don't matter all that much, defer. Defer. Yield to the other. It's not going to hurt you that much. And it's going to lead to peace in your relationships. There are several other characteristics in this list, many that we have talked about at length throughout this series, so we won't treat them again here, things like impartiality. But, but I think if we could excel as individuals and as a community of faith, as the church, if we could excel in these ways, I'm convinced that our relationships, that our community life would attract others, that we would begin to shine as a bright light of meekness in a world that is often inundated with the darkness of domination. John Vanier, the Canadian Catholic theologian, a man whose faith didn't stay up here, but was expressed in very concrete ways in his humanitarian work for a segment of society all, uh, often forgotten. He founded the Larsh communities throughout Canada, which if, you, if you've read any of Henry Nouwen's works, you know that those communities played a pivotal role in his spiritual development. But Vanier suggested this. He said, perhaps the most essential quality for anyone who lives in community is patience. Patience. It sounds very similar to some of the things James is outlining here that are associated with true wisdom that is from above. Patience. Heather, Andy, and Ed, if you guys want to come up. As we begin to move toward a time of communion, we reflect upon these words from James. We are reminded that true wisdom, true wisdom as James defines it, leads to thriving in harmonious relationships because it understands that life is not a game with winners and losers, 
but life is a gift that is to be embraced and to be shared freely. And if we can make that transition in our thinking about life, it's not a game. It is a gift to be shared and embraced. I think we would be moving in the the right direction. Would you stand this morning? Before we say a prayer as a way of invitation to the table, and by the way, we invite all of you to participate as we share in the Eucharist this morning. If you're visiting, if you're not a part of a church or our church, we invite you to respond to Christ's invitation to himself. Before our prayer, though, I want to share something that the 7th century monk from Constantinople, Maximus the Confessor, said. He, he said that true neighbor love is defined by these three marks. It gives blessings, it endures abuses, it never accuses. It gives blessings, it endures abuses, it never accuses. So we pray this morning, Jesus, may these three marks begin to shape us. May we bless others with our mouths. May we endure abuses. May we never accuse. And our prayer for communion today. Lord, help us to live peaceful lives with our neighbors, especially those who hold different religious, ideological, or cultural beliefs than we do. For as your servant James said, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. God, give us this wisdom that is from above, wisdom that is demonstrated in meekness and can only come from you. We pray, search our hearts today. Purify our thoughts. Indwell us with your spirit and conform us into the character and likeness of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.